into the world of digital sound. Hey there, good people of the internet. Welcome, welcome. This is Ken. This is the Ken Podcast Story, and this is number 97. We're getting close to that magic 100, aren't we? But here we go, number 97. And uh, this one um, I've been kind of saving for a little while because it would... <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a difficult story to tell. It's... It's a story that has a lot of relevance in today's life, I think. And perhaps some of you that sit back and watch the carnage on the news and, you know, you you become desensitised to a lot of what goes on these days. Playing violent video games is apparently a great way to uh, prep people for going into the army, uh, according to uh, some general I read about not so long ago. The level of violence was simply not there. Bear in mind that back in the day, we didn't have the internet. We had the news, but we certainly didn't have the internet. Or mobile phones, although they were launched in the period that we're talking about here. So let's kick off. Um, Let's just start by saying, usual disclaimer, all any parts of this podcast story may or may not be true it is up to you the listener to decide whether or not you think it is or it isn't and put a comment in the comment section on the youtube video which will go up on the ken channel and uh, all names have been changed to protect the innocent or not so innocent <laughs> it's an interesting one could you describe any of us as innocent i don't think you could <laughs> Not one of the friends I knew, not one person I knew when I was growing up could ever be described as innocent. <laughs> Isn't that sad? <laughs> okay, so we're going to go back to 1985, people. And uh, what a year that was. Christ, a lot of things happened in 1985, <laughs> would you believe? Um, Christ, yeah, as I say, the uh, the first um, mobile phones were launched in 1985. Vodafone kicked it off and then Cellnet, I think, followed just after that. And uh, that was right, right at the beginning of the year. So 1985 kicked off with this humongous um, step forward this leap into the future and everyone was so excited and and everyone was amazed at what the future was going to bring them and you know there was hope and there was uh, a sense of a sense of things being not quite real that star trek had come to life that we were all going to have you know where was it going to end we were going to start off with the the little Hello, beam me up, Scotty. We were going to all start off with one of those and, you know, have these personal communicators that we now call cell phones. And the next thing would be, I don't know, um, instant transportation throughout the world, teleporters, visiting other planets. And, you know, maybe, maybe all that could have been achieved. Maybe a lot of that could have been achieved had we not been a world who was obsessed with finding ever increasingly more ingenious ways of blowing each other up if we'd have invested in the right direction maybe we would now be talking and walking on other worlds personal view but i just think it would have been great but there you go 
But then, so 1985, we're all sitting back and we're thinking, God, the future's arrived. God, it's here. It's here. Mobile phones are here. I know they look like a breeze block and, you know, they cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. But, you know, it's it's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. And that was what happened in January and everybody was very much celebrating that going into the early part of the year in 85 I thought 85 was a a fantastic year Um, it was it was a really it was a year full of hope and then the Sinclair C5 got launched (laughs) and the world went oh fuck Oh, Sir Clive Sinclair launched the C5 and everybody went, oh, my God. Okay, Um, it was good effort. There was uh, there was a number of um, interesting things about the C5. But if you've never seen one of these, by the way, if you are under the age of 40 and you've never seen a Sinclair C5, please Google it. Sinclair C5. And trust me, these are not a joke. This guy actually launched these as an alternative means of transport for the inner cities. Yeah. You drive one of those anywhere near a bus in London and you're a very brave man. But anyway, that was uh, one of the things that happened uh, in this year. But a a lot of other things, you know, a lot of other things happened. There was a, I remember there was a massive gas explosion in London that year. I remember all of us seeing that um, on the news and just... I don't know. The humanity of it, I think, got to a lot of people. There were a lot of personal stories that came out about that and because um, it was I think it was a block of flats and there was a lot of human stories about how post-war Britain had become a world of stackham and rackham as far as people were concerned and people were living in these terrible high-rise buildings Birmingham was awful I remember I had a lot of friends that lived in Birmingham that lived in these shitholes these utter shitholes there were certain ones in in Coventry um, and I won't name them because they're probably still there and people still live in them but they were kind of surrounded by a square and uh, that was the only way in really to go through this entrance into the square and it became a no-go area for police because whenever a police car turned up into this square there was so much shit being thrown from these high-rise flats onto the police cars they simply stopped going there it was too dangerous for them Uh, i think that probably became one of the first no-go areas that i'd ever come across i mean quite often it'd be the case that we'd turn up at the flats and um you know we'd uh we'd have to pick somebody up or meet somebody and it it was always i mean on one particular occasion i remember being there and somebody threw a tv off a <laughs> off a balcony and it landed and the, the tv and there was a lot of shouting and stuff and clothes and then a case came down i think she was chucking a boyfriend out or or something along those lines but jesus christ the tv Come, coming down from the like 15th floor of these blocks of flats and the oh scary scary place but you know one of the things that happened so the early part of the year was kind of it was mixed and uh 
we were still doing what we were doing. And if, you, if you've never heard one of these podcasts, you really have to go and listen to a few of the others. Uh, find one where I explain what we were like or what we were up to when we were that age, 20-year-olds, on slightly the fag-end side of being gangsters, wannabe gangsters as we were back then. Um, so, yeah, a lot, a lot of what we did wasn't particularly great. Um, a lot of what we did was questionable but a lot of what we did was just fucking awesome it just was and doing the repossession of cars earning your money doing the odd job for the family there was no better way to live as a 20 something at that age at that age in that time and in that space there was no greater place to have been to have lived with those people and those friends. No drama. Just no drama. But, okay, so... Um, right, so let's uh, let's crack on and give you this podcast story. I'm kind of avoiding it, aren't I? <laughs> I shouldn't avoid it, but I am avoiding it. And it's because it's a difficult one to start with, really. Early part of February, um, we were, Christ, doing our usual shit. Um, loving life, living life, clubbing, girls, booze, cars. We were doing it all. And we were just living our own little world. But one thing that we did have was a sense of fellowship, a sense of kinship. There were people out there back in those days who you would help without question at the drop of a hat, no matter what you were doing. And I truly mean that. I mean, one, one particular year, I got a phone call on Christmas Day, just about before Christmas lunch, which was a big deal in my house. And I had to leave to go and do something. And I couldn't tell anyone where I was going and what I was doing. But this was, this was the sort of world that we lived in. And this particular day in early February, together with maybe 10 other guys, um, we had gone over to Coombe Abbey on a Sunday because we were bored. And we thought we'd take a stroll go through the parks just something to do really sit around gassing and we did that we did that from um, we did that from probably 11 o'clock and then got back to my flat about 4 when I got back the answer phone was off the hook and we all came in and I saw the flashing light and I pushed the button and the first call was from, and I'm going to change his name, a guy called Ronnie. Ronnie was also fag end gangster, but he was doing work for the family on a regular basis, which is more than we were. Sometimes he was a driver. Sometimes he would um, stand around, you know, uh, <sighs> 
how do you describe that? <laughs> um, he would stand around making sure people didn't go in places that they shouldn't. <laughs> Minding doors and looking out for things of that nature. Right, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> right. He would also look after some of the hookers, all right? He would go with them, be in the car and wait until they got away from the window and then he'd sit in the car and wait. Anyway, um, so there was a call on there from Ronnie and he said, uh, I don't know where you guys are, but I've tried phoning around. Can you please give me a call back on this number as soon as you can? And uh thought, oh, okay. Next call was probably about half an hour later and the, the next call that had been recorded and it was Ken's Ronnie I really need you guys to get your shit together and give me a call back I really really need you to do this and I thought right okay uh, third call was from Ronnie and he was a bit panicked in this one and he was just saying I don't know where the fuck you guys are but the whole world and his wife are on this one. You need to be in. We need as much help as we can get. And your help in particular. And I was like, what? So I didn't bother listening to the next set of messages. I phoned him. And he, he answered the phone and went, thank fuck, you've actually picked up a phone. I said, what's going down? He said, we have got uh, a young kid has gone missing. And uh, she was somewhere just off the woods, which were on the London Road. Um, now, where I lived, um, where I went to school, every single day, we had to walk down one road, down the London Road. And then rather than carry on straight, we would usually cut through the woods to get to school because we could have a fag there without anybody giving us a hard time and um, we knew the woods like the back of our hands I mean we spent a lot of time when we were very young kids when we were perhaps in our early teens riding our bikes through there um, uh, yeah, going through the river swimming in the river putting swings up you know well, we knew those woods really really well and uh, I said, right, okay, so what can we do? He said, right, there are loads of people about. They're all down London Road sort of area. So just get your ass down there and see if you can, you know, just get some ideas on some of the places where other people aren't looking. And I was like, right. Now, at least um, six of the guys... I hung around with went to the same school as me and we all kind of knew those woods and we I mean it was a, a meeting place like kids nowadays they meet at parks and whatever we always met in the woods so we all tried down there we dived in cars and tried down there and we put our walking boots on and you know put on some heavy clothes it was February and we shaved down there and we spent um we spent, what, the best part of two, three hours looking for this kid um, in the woods. Now, when we'd arrived, we were met by the police 
who uh you know we explained you know we know these woods and they they basically said okay we'll take an officer with you and uh split up into two groups and go and see if you know anywhere that we don't or that no one else does and we did i mean we knew a couple of places actually i know it sounds a bit silly but the 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 woods were kind of overgrown on top of an old abbey and so there were places there were dips where you know the abbey had taken the odd bomb during world war Two, and so there were massive craters that had been overgrown and if you kind of look across you wouldn't necessarily see that there was a crater there um because it it, it had grown so much uh but you know you might look at it and just think well i can see clearly across that when in reality it was maybe four or five feet deep so uh those are the areas that we concentrated on and we had this cop with us and um we searched and we looked and yeah we were there for about three hours and uh then this cop got something over his radio and he said okay uh they found a uh, we were like, oh, okay. Well, that's good news. And it wasn't good news because she'd fell in the river. And they'd found her two miles upstream. Two miles downstream. And that kind of... Um, it didn't... I wouldn't say it... You know, we were all sad about it but none of us knew her and as we came out the woods there was four or five police officers stood around this woman and uh, we must have been 30 yards away from her and that it was at that point that they told her that they'd found the body I mean I don't know why they didn't tell us straight away maybe they were waiting for a female officer or whatever but she let out a scream that haunted me absolutely haunted me I mean there was me and the boys coming out the woods going you know oh well at least we've done our bit you know learn uh you know, oh, we'll still be in time for the pub, yay! And there was this woman whose life just got destroyed. And I can't describe that scream. I've never... I, w- I would say I've never heard anything like it, but I have heard something like it, actually. And it was quite recently. Um, I was I was involved in doing some uh, security work on... Um, for a company and I was tasked with going through a number of PCs looking for company who had got permission for everybody, from everybody to have this done by the way I think they'd actually got a court order as well and uh, I was part of a team that went in and we went through the hard drives for every PC in the building and I found a video on there of uh, Ken Bigley being beheaded by uh, the Taliban That was a scream, very, very similar to the scream I heard that day. Well, we 
we didn't particularly feel like going for a beer that night. And we were all kind of subdued by it. And it... I'm not, I'm not sure any of us really understood why. I mean, when you're 20 years old, you don't really understand it. You don't really get it. You, your head's in the game, but your heart's not there. And we didn't have the life experience, I think, at that point that we needed to be able to desensitise ourselves from that. Well, that night, a few nights, we didn't go out. A um, lot of people that came round, they could all see that there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of subdued faces. There was a, that we were obviously affected by it. And uh, then one of the boys said, "I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, we'll have a whip round. You know, we'll go and see if we can uh, put some money together uh, to at least help pay for the funeral, if nothing else." And so we did, and uh, we took a collection in the the pub um, for this little girl. And we raised about four grand, something like that. Back then, that was probably about the cost of the funeral. And we made sure that this money got to her her mum. She was a single mother, by the way. I don't know where the father was. And she was an only child, this girl that died. So uh, so we gave her this money and uh, it wasn't till a little while afterwards, probably, I don't know, probably about three or four months, that one of the girls that we hung around with who was doing a psychology degree told us that the reason why we felt the way we did was probably guilt in that who's to say had we have not gone to Coombe Abbey that day had we have not um, spent the whole day there that we might have got that call <clears throat> earlier in the day we might have been able <clears throat> we might have been able to do something about uh, finding this kid um, we, we might have prevented her death and there's a lot of ifs, buts and maybes in that but it's the ifs the buts and the maybes um, that tear at you in those sort of situations so a lot of things happened after that, we moved on. We went past it. We carried on doing what we were doing. We probably held it as baggage, but we carried on doing what we were doing. And we, after a few days, were laughing and joking again. 
we were back going down the pub, doing the nightclubs, doing the silly shit, doing all the things we did, doing the repos. And we then got a call um, from a member of the family. And he just said, easy job for you. I've got 10 cars. Need going from X to Y. Uh, do you want to take them up? And uh, what we'll do is we'll send you up with a, a transit van, minibus, and we'll bring you back on that. Easy as pie. No problem. So uh, we said fine. And uh, we got ourselves ready to, to go on this little jaunt. Now, I like jobs like that because they were easy. They were straightforward. There was, you know, very few problems to be had. And all you had to do was get in a nice motor and drive it. And I like driving nice cars. As long as we didn't do anything silly, did any racing. Chewing gum's going in, by the way. Pissing about with each other, trying to outdo each other, draw attention to ourselves. You'd be fine in those sort of jobs. And nine times out of ten, we were. We were sensible enough not to... I mean, it was tempting, uh, especially if you had a nice, tasty BMW or something, to put your foot down and give it the beans and see what it can do. And um, bear in mind, you've got 10 guys, uh, plus the minibus driver. So you've got 10 guys heading north on a motorway. The temptation to try and race each other, it's it's immense. But we, we didn't do it. And the people that would ask us to do these sort of things. They knew we wouldn't do it. They knew we wouldn't let them down. So we all went down to a lockup. Nine o'clock in the morning, go and find the cars. And all the cars are in the lockup. They are all pristine and they are beautiful. There's Mercs, Beamers, there's oh, some corking cars there. And I saw this absolutely beautiful... <laughs> This beautiful Mercedes. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm having that. <laughs> somebody shouted shotgun and I was beat to it. So I ended up in a, a black BMW. And uh, we had a leisurely drive north. Now, it was a long drive. It was a serious, a serious way up the motorway. <laughs> it was uh, the M6, by the way. And... Uh, we took these cars to where they should have gone. And uh, we pulled in at the address. It was easy to find just off the motorway. You know, chap, chap that met us up there, he was like, you know, scouse bloke. And he, really <laughs> he took the cars off us. Really funny guy. He took the cars off us and... Uh, you know, there was no payments, change hands or anything. We just had to deliver. Um, he'd make a phone call to confirm delivery. We'd be told to get on our way, right? Easy as up. So that's how it worked. And we all got in the minibus and started to head south. We were in the car for, we are in the minibus for the best part of an hour. And we're laughing we're joking we're telling jokes we're telling dirty jokes we're all smoking and the minibus is <laughs> the minibus if you opened a window it looked like it was on fire you know um 
everybody's uh, everybody's having a laugh, and uh, we're talking about and some bullshit or another, and then the next thing we know, the driver, who is again one of ours, slams on his brakes. Well, he hit his brakes with such force, and none of us are wearing seatbelts, that uh, we all literally shot towards the seat in front of us. And uh, a couple of us smacked our heads into the guys sat in front of us. And um, I didn't realise, I didn't know whether or not we'd hit anything. And all I could hear around me was an incredible sound of crashing cars and squealing brakes and everywhere around me. And then the minibus got hit from behind and we got pushed forward. And then we got pushed forward again from another hit. And it's really hard to to take it all in what's happening. Your brain just doesn't work that fast. You know you're in an accident. And the first rule is to make yourself as safe as possible is to put yourself in a position where you are as safe as you possibly can be from any injury. And so those of us who had brains just got on the floor in the minibus, hands over our head in the fetal position. Uh, We didn't all do that. And I was told afterwards that uh, the sight of a bin lorry what the fuck that was doing on the M6, I don't know. But the sight of the bin lorry heading towards us was a, a bit of a sight to behold. And uh, caused a few people to um, come close to shitting themselves, I think. But the bin lorry didn't. It hit another car. And that car hit our minibus. And then all of a sudden, absolute silence. Complete and total silence. Now, the minibus that we were in had um, tinted windows. So we didn't really see what was going on. We didn't really appreciate what was going on outside as far as the weather is concerned. But it had actually got quite foggy. And it had got quite misty, damp February Now, this minibus had a big sliding door, and we managed to get that one open. Couldn't open the back door, because there was a car against it. Couldn't open the driver's door, because it was wedged with a car. Um, We couldn't open the passenger door, because there was another car wedging that. But the side door slid sideways. And uh, came down the length of the vehicle. So we we grabbed that and pulled it. And it released about four or five inches. And uh, there was so much shouting. Although I I could hear the shouting, but I didn't... All that I could hear was a high-pitched tone in my head. That was it. That was all that I could hear.
and um, I couldn't think straight. I just, my head wouldn't, it's, it's really hard to describe. My brain wasn't working fast enough to take in everything that had just happened. And then all of a sudden, snap, snap, my brain kicked in. I realized where we were, what we were doing there, what we needed to do next. And I went straight over the seats and started kicking the front window out of the minibus. A couple of the guys joined in. <clears throat> a couple of seconds, windscreen gone. And we started to get out. I was shouting to the boys, watch out for fire and smoke. Watch out for other cars. Get to the side of the jewel. Get to the side of the carriageway. Um, and we started to crawl out one by one. I had uh, one leg on the bonnet, one leg on the passenger seat, and I was helping people through the bus together with the driver, who was all right because he was the only one wearing a seatbelt. Um, as people were going out, I was looking at their faces and just checking injuries. And the boys were okay. I mean, they're, they're, well, so they're okay. We were bashed and bruised. There was a lot of blood. Um, but, you know, everyone still had a head on their shoulders. So we all got out. There was a space between us, um, which consisted of a, a square, a car's length worth of square in between four cars, where two cars were sideways and then two cars were straight on and they created this little square and we all landed in this square and uh, we then assessed whether or not everyone was okay everyone okay you're right you're right yeah I'm okay I'm okay what's that have a look at that on your head is that okay yeah yeah it's nothing it's nothing and I said right and I put a arm down the middle of the group. And I said, right, you forward, get as many people out the cars and onto the verge as possible if there's any danger. If there's no danger, leave them in the car. If the car's smoking, if it's got flames, get them out. If it hasn't got that, leave them in because you could do worse than they've already got. If people just need help getting out of the cars, then help them get out of the cars. Get everybody onto the grass verge. Five of us went forward. Five of us went backwards. I was in the group that went forward. We were climbing over bonnets, over cars. As I stood on one of the bonnets, it just felt like there was a sea of carnage in front of me. There were there were cars everywhere. Cars had crashed all over the place. There were cars in the barrier. There were cars upside down. There were cars on their sides. There was, 
probably 15, 20 yards in front of me. Car's on fire. But we were determined. I was determined. That we could do something to help. And we could cut through this fog of dazed, shocked people and bring some sort of help to the situation. The first car I got to, I was with one of the boys and uh, the passenger door was fucked. We went over the top, could see people in the car. Um, We got the driver's door open. It was only a two-door car. We got the driver out. And then we pulled the seat forward and we got two kids out of the back. Shaken, but they seemed okay. And we brought them out of the car. We brought a woman out of that car across the seats. And then my mate escorted them over to the bank. We, I moved up to the next car that I could see that had people in it. And, and they didn't seem to be getting out. A lot of people were getting out of their own volition. They were they were just exiting their vehicles. But quite a few people weren't. And the fire, the closer I got to it, the more it started to concern me that this thing was going to go bang. That the fuel tank on this thing would go up. And if that happened, everything was going to get showered. Whether it be shrapnel, whether it be flames whether it be from a fireball, everything was going to go up. So my priority was to get as many people out of cars and walking towards a bank, just away from that situation. And even if I was pointing them back down the motorway, away from this, these cars that were on fire, um, then we could do it. And, um, as I was then joined by my mate on one particular car, um, we could tell that the woman in the passenger seat was dead. No seatbelt. Her head had hit the windscreen and... Basically, part of her head had disintegrated onto the windscreen. Uh, The bloke was in a a really, really bad way. And there was a young lad of maybe 10, 11 years old lying on the centre console between the two front seats. Um, And he got a hell of a head wound as well but he was moving and he was crying which is always a good sign we pulled the bloke out we pulled the kid out and as I looked up to see how bad the flames were getting on the car on one of the cars I could clearly see somebody inside moving 
but it, it, it was a human shape. But it was a human shape of flame. And I'm still to this day unsure as to whether or not what I thought I saw, I did see. I don't know whether it was the flames moving around inside the vehicle or whether it genuinely was somebody who was trying to get out. Well, we got um, another two, three people out in that immediate vicinity of where the fire was. And uh, we went up to one car um, that was quite close. Now, from the looks of things, and I'm no crash scene investigator, but they'd gone into the back of another car with force. Uh, the engine of the car, you could clearly see that the gearbox was inside the car and it was somewhere close to the back seat. So this thing had just completely crumpled in and the engine had gone through into the car. It had then spun and then had a sideways hit. I looked to see if there was anyone alive. I didn't feel for any pulses or anything. But it, it just seemed clear to me that the four people in that car hadn't got out and they were never getting out. It just... The, the next car I went to... I got as far as the door. And then the first car I'd seen that was on its side exploded. The one that was on fire. And the shock wave blew me. I was actually holding onto a door handle. And it blew me from that car to maybe 10 feet. into another car. And it was just a daze from there. I didn't know if I was injured. Um, I felt pain. And the guy that I was with, uh, he'd also been blown, but he got blown practically across the carriageway. I felt that there was something distinctly wrong with my face. And that, that, that's hard to describe as well. I'm sorry, I'm not being very descriptive about this. As far as my face was concerned, it felt like somebody had put a shroud on me. It felt like 
uh, somebody had just taken a piece of very, very thin, delicate cloth and put it on my face as a mask. And it just felt like I was wearing a mask. I recomposed as much as I could, went back to the car and uh, opened the front door um, only to be met by carnage, utter carnage. Uh, Both the people in the front seats of the car had, without a doubt, hit the uh, either the dashboard or the windscreen or whatever. I'm pretty sure he'd gone into the steering wheel because his, his, his whole front was the wrong shape. His entire front. And it had um, pretty much crushed his chest. There was a dog in the back of the car on the back seat. And the dog seemed fine. It was just barking. So I reached in for the dog, pulled it out, and just left it on the carriageway. I went two or three cars up. I passed a number of empty cars. And then there was another car with all, all four doors closed. And um, a second explosion went off. Well, by now, I was far enough away to be able to uh, not get knocked by the blast wave. I felt the blast wave, but I didn't get knocked by it. And... um, Then all sorts of people started turning up. There were police turned up and ambulances started turning up. Coming the wrong way, I might add, down the motorway. And off a slip road. And uh, that's when I saw the first fire engine. Um, And I just felt like I hadn't I hadn't finished the job yet I hadn't I was almost annoyed that they were there <laughs> I don't know how that makes any sense at all but it was almost as if what the, what the fuck are you doing here I'm doing this and um I kept hearing my name being called and it was my mate and he just kept saying Ken, Ken, over here, Ken and I was like yeah I'll be there in a sec, Ken and I um, got to what was pretty much the front of this chaos and that was it that was that was it uh, a, a massive relief 
came through me. I've done it. I've 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 done the job. I've gone out there and I've fucking stuck it to them and I've saved lives and I got to uh I got to a point at the front where I just turned around and looked back. And I, I couldn't recognise it as a motorway. I couldn't recognise it as a scene of anything. It looked like a fucking war film. And then my mate caught up with me. And then he held onto my arm and he went, come on, let's get you checked out. And I was like, fuck off. <laughs> be stupid. And... Um, I passed out at that point. Well, the next thing I remember is opening my eyes and I was on the bank. I was on the grass verge. And the boys, most of the boys were stood around me. And they were saying, water, just put some water on him or something. And... uh, One of the boys was shouting to somebody, obviously an ambulance driver or a paramedic or whatever he was. Over here, mate, got one over here, come on. And I, I heard the the guy, the paramedic, say, one minute, be with you in one minute. And then he ran off. And the boys were panicking and I thought, fucking what's wrong with me? And I started to think, is everything still attached? And I thought back to these war movies that I saw as a kid where they landed on the beach at Dunkirk. And as they were bombed, limbs were being ripped off. And they didn't know it because of the shock. And I was looking across myself and could feel my hands, I could see my hands. Could see my legs, could feel them. I couldn't um I couldn't breathe. But then again that was the I just put that down to the smoke. That was bloody acrid black shit smoke. Horrible fucking stuff. And then I, I coughed and uh, I coughed something up. I didn't know at the time it was blood, but there you go. Um, and I guess I just passed out again. Next time I opened my eyes, I was in a casualty unit. And I was looking through two slits cut in a uh, gauze. And my brain still wasn't working right. I still didn't know what was happening, what was going on. 
I understood what we'd done. I understood that we'd um, run the course and tried to save as many people as we could or help as many people as we could. What I couldn't work out was why I was there. And I tried to speak to the boys and I couldn't couldn't speak. It was like having the ultimate chap lips. I was just so dry. And I was just asking for water and they were giving me water from a straw. Well, they decided that the best thing to do would be to put me out which they did. And uh, the damnedest thing, damnedest thing, I woke up and it was Christ. Three days later, um, my parents were there And a couple of the boys were there. And one of the girls I knew, she was there. And what had happened was... I'd taken a blast. When the first car exploded, I'd taken the fireball to the face. And it would it only really burned me superficially. It took my hairline back about an inch and a half took my eyebrows out um, <clears throat> and it just took the top layer of my skin off but what I'd done is I'd inhaled gone to the dock just as the fireball hit and I'd burnt my lungs and uh that was why I was I was in you know quite a bad way. I wasn't getting the right amount of oxygen. I wasn't surviving it as I should be. And they put all sorts of uh, tubes in me and tubes going down into my lungs and shit and um, cleaned me out, cleaned all the soot out from my internal burns. So I was in there for another week. And just at the point where I'm ready to say, fuck this, I'm going home, they let me go home. And um, it was all in the news. The whole thing. It was in every paper, and the, the guys had kept the papers... And we'd been condemned for our actions. I had, although they hadn't named me. Because the boys quite rightly decided that I wouldn't really want to be named. But we had been condemned for our actions. 
for putting ourselves in harm's way and therefore putting others in harm's way. And running into a fire, which is not what I did at all, is something that they claimed uh, in the papers that I'd done. The most seriously injured of them. And it was all a bit, it was all this fucking fire chief. It was all him saying that, you know, the have a go heroes created more problems than they solved. I didn't see it that way. Still don't see it that way. Cast my mind back to what happened. And no way. We got people out. We got people out of the cars. And the only thing that the papers could say were things like he risks one individual risked his life by running into a burning car to save a dog. That was bullshit. Absolute bullshit. I don't, I don't know why I expected that, really. I didn't expect hearts and flowers. I didn't expect kudos. I mean, I didn't... But I didn't expect that. I was talking to, quite a while after that actually, I was talking to the same girl, the same psychology student, who had spoke to me after the girl's death in the river. And she had an interesting theory. She thinks that we did do that. She thinks that all of us, or at least some of us, did put ourselves in ridiculous situations of danger because we felt guilty about not saving the girl in the river. It's something... It's something I've pondered over. We small hours, you wake up in the morning, can't sleep. The ghosts have got you. Brains go intense of the dozen. Crack a bottle of JD and think. Try and think things through. That one comes up every now and then. Why would we have done that? Why would we... Why would we... have put ourselves... in... certain... almost certain death experiences... as situations? I still don't believe we did. I still believe... that what we did... it was dangerous... But we face danger all the time. 
We faced danger every time we repoed a car, that someone was going to turn up with a shotgun. And I think it breaks down to the different levels of danger and its perception of that danger. Had we have done the same thing today, we'd be in front of Buckingham Palace getting honoured by the Queen. Back then, we were condemned. And I wonder if because of that condemnation, people didn't take that extra step, didn't put themselves in that small amount or calculated risk of a dangerous situation to help another person. That fire chief, in my view, has got a shitload to answer for. Nine people died that day. Nine. I forget how many were injured. But I'm still convinced to this day we hadn't have acted the way we did, more people would have died. Sure of it. It's an ungrateful world. And that's one of the things I took away from that event. It is very much an ungrateful world. But if you'd have seen what I'd have seen, tell me what you would have done. Tell me if you would have risked it all. I knew I'd get angry telling this story. I know I would. I don't like to get angry. It makes me angry. It's it. Situations like that create a world where nobody gives a shit about anyone else. Nobody's willing to put themselves out. Old lady gets mugged walking down the street with a street full of people. Nobody does anything. God, I hate this world sometimes. I'm going to go and get annoyed on my own. Guys, uh, comments in the comments section, please. Ninety-eight is coming very soon. I'll see you on the dark side. Take care. Welcome to the world of digital sound. Shutting down all systems.